Okay, I think it's time to go to the, the third Dalai Lama. Okay, so we are on the section, How to Rely Upon a Spiritual Mentor. In some texts, this topic is translated as guru devotion. I think that's uh, a very inaccurate translation and can be very misleading. Okay? Because the Tibetan term is Shenyan Tempa. Shenyan means spiritual friend. And Tempa means to depend upon or to rely on. Yeah? So the idea is how to rely upon a spiritual friend so that we make it easy for that person to lead us on the path. If you translate it as guru devotion, we get the idea that there's some, you know, mystical guru up there in the sky and we just are, we're just little ants that, and our whole purpose is just to sit there looking at them with gaga eyes in total devotion. And then we get this thing about we surrender to the guru. And then what we surrender is uh, not our ego, but our wisdom. <laughs> and think we're just devoting to this, you know, because we Americans are very good at making idols, aren't we? You know, so we make somebody into this idol and then just fall in love with our own creation. And that creates a lot of obstacles to actually forming a healthy, productive relationship with somebody uh, and enabling them to lead us on the path. So just even in the words through a devotion, I think it gives us the wrong idea. Okay, so the third Dalai Lama says the best way to rely on a spiritual master is to practice analytical meditation upon his or her excellent qualities and his beneficial function in your spiritual life. Now, I think this is very telling, okay? The best way to rely on a spiritual master is to practice analytical meditation. Okay? The best way to rely on a spiritual master is not to make them into an idol of what you want them to be, is not to, you know, he didn't write, is not to make this fuss and, you know, do, do some, who knows what, behave like a groupie, okay? Mm-hmm. He's saying the best way is to practice this analytical meditation. And what are we trying to, in the meditation, see, is their excellent qualities and second, the beneficial uh, function in our spiritual life. So, he he continues on from there. Consider the countless ways in which he or she is kind to you. He is the root of all good attain, uh, the root of all attainment, the source of all goodness in this and future lives. The doctor who eradicates the disease of mental disturbances with the medicine of the Dharma. Although you have wandered in samsara since beginningless time, never before did you meet a spiritual master. Or if you did meet one, you did not follow uh, correctly follow the teachings, for you are not yet a Buddha. Mm-hmm. Think, I have now met a spiritual master and will try to practice as pleases him or her. Okay? So here... Um, 
you know, thinking of the way that somebody is kind to you. Yeah. And also thinking of, of their good qualities. Those are two slightly different things, okay? You'd see if you're meditating to see your good qualities, you're gonna of your teacher, you know, you think about their ethical conduct, their um, meditation ability, their wisdom, their bodhicitta, their compassion. You know, you really look at, at the qualities that this person shows as a human being and you train your mind to see their good qualities. And that's a very important thing, you know, because our mind, we usually practice analytical meditation on people's faults, okay? We're very good at doing analytical meditation on their faults. They do this wrong and they do that wrong and they're sloppy here and they're irresponsible there. But that kind of way of thinking doesn't do anything for us. When we really spend some time looking at our teacher's good qualities, you know, then uh, it develops a sense of respect in, in us and a sense of trust that, oh, this person has some special qualities. So if I rely on them, they have the, you know, what it takes to be able to lead me on the path. Okay, so seeing that they're quite, their good qualities helps us develop that sense of trust uh, in them. Okay? And then mind you, this is after we have checked somebody out very, very well and formed a spiritual relationship with them. Okay, so the first thing is, you know, what we went through in the last sessions, first we really check out somebody's qualities to see if they have them. Then after we form that meditation, we keep, uh, after we form that relationship with them, taking them as one of our spiritual mentors, then we train our mind to consistently see their good qualities. Okay? And then we also uh, train, train to see that their kindness to us. Okay? So consider the countless ways in which he or she is kind to you. Okay? So how are they kind? Okay, they're the root of all attainment. You might say, well, how is a spiritual mentor the root of the attainment? A plant receives its nourishment from its roots. Okay? Doesn't it? Without roots, a plant can't, can't stand up straight. It gets nourished and it gets its stability from its roots. Okay? So we get nourished spiritually from cultivating a good relationship with our spiritual mentor. Okay. How does that work? Because when we cultivate a good relationship in our own heart, then we always have the feeling that there's this person who's very wise that um, if you know either we can talk to them and ask their advice or we've received so much teaching from them and we've been around them so much that even if we can't physically contact them, we know the kind of advice they're going to give to us. And so we always feel supported in our practice. Okay? And so through the teacher's ability teaching us, you know, what we need to learn at a particular time and that teacher nurtures us in the same way that, you know, a plant gets nurtured by 
you know, the, the nutrients coming in through the roots. Kesha teacher is the source of, of all goodness in this and future lives. So this is talking also about not only the kindness of our teacher, but the beneficial function that, that they play in our, in our life. Okay, so how is our teacher the source of goodness in this and future lives? If I look at my own experience, okay, when I met the Dharma, if I look at, at what I was doing in my life and what was going on in my life, if I hadn't have met the Dharma and had just continued living the way I, I was living up to that point, I would have made a total mess in my own life and I would have really hurt a lot of other people, for sure. Okay? So you can see, even in this life, having met the teachers, you know, who, tra- who turned my mind to the Dharma, even in this life, you know, they're the, they're the um, what does it say, the source of the goodness. Yeah. yeah. So the way my life has turned out, I owe completely to my teachers, because without them, I wouldn't have met the Dharma. My life would have been a mess. Okay, that's this life. Now, if I had lived this life as a mess, completely with my selfish mind and my anger and my attachment, my jealousy and all of that stuff, then for sure next life would have been a mess. And then all the lives after that would have been messes too. You know, because once you fall to the lower realms, it's so difficult to get out. Yeah, so having met the teacher and heard the teachings and then being able to abandon at least a little bit of negative karma create some positive karma do some purification start to train my mind to go in another direction you know all of that came about because of meeting my teachers none of that would have come about had I not met my teachers absolutely none of it you know couldn't have gotten that from a book anyway when I was around there were very few books on Buddhism, you know? So, in English anyway. <laughs> yeah? So, you know, all of that came about, you know, just because my teachers. Otherwise, you know, I mean, who knows what I would be doing, what I would become. Yeah? So, really, the source of goodness in this and future lives. Adopt the doctor who eradicates the disease of mental disturbances with the medicine of the Dharma. Well, that's really true, you know, because you, you, you know, start to look at your mind, you know, boy, my mind's pretty sick, you know, attachment, ignorance, resentment, arrogance, haughtiness, condescension, you know, the, the whole nine yards, everything's there, just all this rubbish in the mind, okay? And so how is it that I learn the ways to deal with my mind and tame it and get rid of all this garbage and litter and pollution in my mind? Again, it's, it's from having met a teacher. Yeah. Now somebody could say, well, couldn't you get that from a book? I don't think so. Okay. Books are very good for, um, how to say, when you have a teacher for, for filling in what your teacher hasn't taught you, you know, or for reinforcing what they have taught you. But we really need the example of a living human being who's practicing. You know, a book cannot be a role model. We need to see how somebody is 
to really know that it's possible to transform our mind. Otherwise, we read a book, it sounds like a lot of nice theory. Okay? Yeah? So, uh, so we really need real teachers yeah, to, to learn the medicine of the Dharma, to apply it to our own lives. Mm-hmm. Although you have wandered in samsara since beginningless time, think about that, beginningless time, no beginning, yeah, eon after eon after eon after eon, been born, everything, done everything, everything in samsara, absolutely no beginning, okay, and we never before met a spiritual master, or, even if we did meet one, we didn't correctly follow the teachings. What's the proof of that? We're not a Buddha. If we had met you know, teachers in the past and followed the teachers, we would have been Buddhist by now. Okay? The fact that we're not Buddhist, it shows that either we didn't meet teachers in previous lives, or we met them, but we took them for granted. We were too busy to go to the teachings. We thought that the teachings weren't really meant for us. They were meant for other people who had all those bad habits. We thought our teacher didn't understand us. We thought they weren't funny enough. They thought that mm-hmm. they had the wrong political opinions. You know, we, we, you know, for one reason or another, didn't correctly follow the teachings. Because yeah. we're not yet Buddhists. So now we think, now I've met a spiritual teacher. Yeah, wow. You know, if you want to say hallelujah, this is something to say hallelujah about. You know, I've met a spiritual teacher. And I will try try to practice as pleases him. Now, this thing about to practice as pleases him. Talk about this a little bit. Because this this term, pleasing the, the spiritual mentor, it comes up a lot. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that phrase used to drive me totally buggy. Why? Because it reminded me of you have to please God. Yeah? Do you have that same kind of reaction? You know? Just you have to please God. If you don't please God, there's, you know, I mean, God, God can be pretty wrathful. You know, and there's hellfire and damnation and all this other stuff. So you better please God. So I, I used to see it, you know, talking about conceptions and everything. That's what I used to project on that. Or another thing I used to project is pleasing my parents. You know, if you get cherries, a good little girl, she better please her parents. Because if you don't please your parents, you're a bad little girl. You know, you don't want to be a bad little girl because your life's going to be miserable if you are. So, so you better please somebody, which means figuring out what you think they think you should be. Okay? So these two meanings of pleasing somebody, it's very, very easy, I think, for us Westerners when we come into Buddhism to have this in our mind when we hear in the teachings, please the spiritual master. So either we think of it as a fearful thing, like with God, we're going to get punished if we don't do it, or we're going to think of it as I'm only a good person, I'm only a worthwhile person if I please mom and dad. 
Okay, that's the only way I'm worthwhile as a human being. Okay, and we so easily project one of those two meanings onto this phrase, pleasing the teacher. Yeah. And I remember Lama Sopi used to say that phrase so much, and I just used to cringe each time. Because it was like, I don't want to practice the Dharma to please anybody. I want to practice the Dharma because I think the Dharma is beautiful. I don't want to try so hard to please thy teacher, or please the Buddha, or please God, or please mom and dad. I want to get rid of that. I just want to practice the Dharma because I love the Dharma. <laughs> and one day I actually went in and I said, Rinpoche, you know, I just can't, you know, Phrase pleasing the time is just completely, uh, you know, it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. <laughs> okay, we talk about reactivity, okay? So I struggled with that phrase for a long time, yeah? And what I've come to conclude, you know, now I have a totally different view on the phrase pleasing, you know, the spiritual mentor. It, and my view now is, when you really see somebody's good qualities and you really trust them and you really value what they're doing for you in your life and you know that there's nobody else in this planet who can do what they're doing and that their kindness is absolutely beyond anything you could ever, ever think of. When you really understand that about your spiritual mentor then of course you want to please them, you know, yeah, but it's a totally different meaning of pleasing somebody, you're not trying to win their good favor, because usually you want to please somebody so that they'll like us and they'll think we're smart and they'll think this and that about us, but this is totally different, it's it's more you please as a way to to show your love and your respect, okay, and also, because when you think about it, what is it that pleases your teacher? Yeah. It's not that you know you were the first disciple to run and get the cup of tea that they wanted and you elbowed out all the other disciples so you could get the tea to them first. Okay. And I say this because sometimes around teachers, the disciples can get into such incredible possessive jealous trips you know oh he wants me to bring the cup of tea get out of here you know I want to be in the holy space with the guru you know get away all you crummy other disciples you know (laughs) oh let me tell you this happens all the time all the time you know it's just like these people are just incredible ego trips jealousy ego trips yeah so, so if you think, you know, what is it that, that pleases the spiritual mentor? Is it that you brought them the cup of tea and because you're special and you got to bring them the cup of tea? Is it, is it you know, you please the spiritual mentor because you gave them a huge donation, you know? And, and of course, you know, that's how you go through your whole life is, you know, buying people's favors. Yeah. And how is it, what is it that really pleases your spiritual mentor? It's your practice, isn't it? You know? It's your practice. And it's not just that you've sat on the cushion 
Anybody can sit on a cushion. A kitty sit on the cushion. Okay? It's not just sitting on a cushion. It's transforming our mind. Okay? So that's what really, really pleases our spiritual mentors, is that we're in the process of transforming our mind. You know? So, you know, we might be going through the day and we notice, okay, there's a bad mood in there. What's happening? Yeah, and applying that medicine to that bad mood, that is what pleases the spiritual mentor. Okay? Not trying to be a good little groupie, but, but really trying to put the teachings into practice. Okay? So it is more kind to give a bowl of simple food to someone dying of hunger than to give a handful of golden coins to someone who has every luxury. For this reason, it is said that your personal spiritual mentor is kinder than even the Buddha himself. The five stages states, The self-born Buddha is a being gone to perfection, but kinder than Buddha is your own teacher that he personally gives you the oral teachings. Contemplate how your guru is kinder than all the Buddhas of the past, present, and future. Okay? So it says that it's kinder to give a bowl of simple food to somebody dying of hunger than to give, you know, golden coins to somebody who has luxury. We're the person dying of hunger. Yeah? Our teacher gives us some teachings, whatever teachings they are. It's like when you're hungry, anything's going to work, isn't it? Yeah? So, we're hungry. You know, we really need the Dharma. That person who teaches us, you know, that Dharma, who gives us a little bit of teachings, when we're, we're like a starving person that receives a little bit of food, that person is kinder to us than, you know, somebody who gives the handful of coins to somebody who's rich. That's like the Buddha giving the teachings to his disciples. Because the disciples, you know, of the Buddha had incredible, you know, positive potential. They gained realizations very, very quickly. Yeah. So it wasn't too hard for the Buddha to teach them. I mean, some of the people, there's all these stories in the canon. The Buddha gave one talk. Instantly they realized impermanence or selflessness. And, you know, very soon thereafter they, they became arhats. Yeah? So the Buddha, in some ways, you know, had, had an easy job because his disciples were so well qualified. And here comes Shakyamun, you know, here comes our spiritual teacher because we didn't have the, the positive potential the merit to be born as direct disciples of the Buddha okay so here comes us we're like these starving people and our teachers give us some food yeah it's quite it's quite powerful because it's, it's in that way that they say that our spiritual that our personal teachers are kinder to us than the Buddha if you look at it another way, you could say the Buddha's kinder because clearly without the Buddha, we wouldn't even have a whole lineage of teachings. We wouldn't have a personal spiritual teacher. You know? So if you look at it that way, the Buddha's the kindness because he set, 
you know, without the Buddha, they would turning the wheel of Dharma, we wouldn't have anything to come after. But if you look at it from another way in terms of us and our own personal particular situation, yeah, we, we didn't have the fortune to be born at the time of the Buddha. So who is it that is teaching us? Yeah? So that, that person's kinder to us than the Buddha in a sense because we didn't have the opportunity to take the teachings directly from the Buddha. Okay? So the role that, that our spiritual mentors play for us in our life is like the role the Buddha played for his disciples in their life, you know, teaching, guiding, inspiring, encouraging, all of that. Okay? And so we train our mind to really see the preciousness of that. And I think that that's actually something quite important because if we see the Dharma as precious, then of course the people who teach us the Dharma are going to be precious to us. If we don't see them as precious, it's like how ungrateful can we be, you know? Because in giving us the teachings of the Dharma, they're giving us much more than, than anybody else on this planet could give, could give us, you know? Even the richest person in the world gave us their whole fortune. What good does that do us? Yeah? We always think, oh, I want to be a millionaire. I'm going to win the lottery. What good is a million dollars going to do you? Really, when you think about it. Yeah, you get a million dollars. I read an article once in a paper about like these people who, who won jackpots and like how the rest of their life played out. Very often it didn't play out very well. And they weren't very happy. But if you see, you know, what our spiritual mentors give us, they're giving us the tools to create all happiness in this life and future lives, all happiness for ourselves and all happiness for all sentient beings. So they're kinder to us than our parents. They're kinder to us than our spouses. They're kinder to us kinder to us than our best friends. They're kinder to us to whoever it is that we're most attached to in the whole planet. Because the people that we're attached to cannot lead us to liberation. Yeah? Think about it. The people that you love the most, that you're the most attached to, can they lead you to liberation? Yeah? Can they? Do you want them in the room with you when you're dying? Uh-uh. Yeah? So who is it that, that, that is the kindness? It's the ones who lead us to liberation and enlightenment, the ones who teach us how to transform our mind. Yeah? So when we realize the value of the Dharma in our lives, then it becomes much easier to see the value of our spiritual mentors. If we don't see the value of the Dharma, and yet we try and... Uh, make ourselves have faith in the spiritual mentors because it says that in the books then our faith becomes very kind of it's it's not substantial it's not stable okay I remember Lama Yeshi you know used used to say uh, oh you know they, they talk so much about you know how you should behave around your spiritual mentor and da 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 da. 
But he said, if somebody comes up to me and just says, Lama, Dharma means a lot to me. Thank you very much. He said, that's, that person has correct understanding. Yeah? Rather than the people's, oh, please, let me open the door for you. Please, would you like this? Please. So, you know how we do this, you know, nice little groupies, okay? But, but really seeing the value of the Dharma, then seeing the value of the spiritual world. If we don't see the value of the Dharma, then the Dharma doesn't mean much in our lives. You know, Dharma's a hobby. It's a nice hobby. Yeah, it ranks equal with playing golf and going out to dinner with our friends and everything else, you know. And so if, if that's the, the importance in our life that the Dharma holds, then that's how we relate to our teacher. Yeah. Oh, Dharma's equal to, you know, my social life and my company parties and my activities for the kids. So when I, you know, I'll parcel my time out equally amongst all those things. And I listen equally to the advice of my friends and my colleagues and my spiritual mentor, there's no difference because they're all of equal value in my life. Okay? Then how does your life turn out if, if that's how you value things? Yeah? Think about it. How, how's your life going to turn out if the Dharma is equal to everything else you do and if your spiritual mentor is equal to everybody else or maybe even a little bit lower because the people we're attached to, you know, we spend much more time with them and we will sacrifice things for them. Yeah. The sacrifice for a spiritual teacher? Oh. Yeah. Okay. So you, you see that, that, that that's all a reflection of how, how much we hold the Dharma as valuable or don't hold the Dharma as valuable. Mm-hmm. And then to the extent with which to the extent at which we hold the Dharma as valuable that's the extent to which we're going to practice it to the extent we practice it that's the extent that we're going to get the results and come closer to enlightenment okay so you see how all these things are tied in yeah appreciation for the Dharma appreciation for our teacher having energy to practice gaining results from your practice. All these things are very, very tied into each other, you know. So if we just have the mind of, well, why aren't I getting anything from my practice? Well, we should see, you know, do I value the Dharma highly? Yeah. And do I value my teacher highly, you know, so that I actually take time out to go for teachings? Yeah. Because if I don't do that, how am I going to learn how to meditate and then how am I going to get you know, make progress on the path. Okay? So it's thinking about all those things together. To receive spiritual instruction, Buddha made offerings of possessions, service, and practice. For example, in a previous life, he offered a hundred thousand pieces of gold to a master to receive the half-births. If there is birth, there is death. Stopping this process is bliss itself. In another life, as a king, he sacrificed his wife and his only child for a single verse of the Dharma. Mm-hmm. 
On another occasion he made his body into a lamp and burned it as an offering to a spiritual mentor. In these and other ways he abandoned wealth, possessions and other objects of attachment. Since you are a follower of the Buddha you should do likewise. If you have heard many teachings from your spiritual master, is his or her kindness not immeasurable? Okay, so in order to receive spiritual instruction, if we look at the example of the Buddha, the fully enlightened one, how, when he was an ordinary being like us, how did he practice? Well, to receive spiritual instruction, this is before he got the teachings, he made offerings of possession, service, and practice. Okay. So let alone if you offer before receiving the teachings, we should definitely offer after the receiving the teachings. So possessions include material goods or you know financial donations. Okay. Service means volunteering your time. Yeah. Putting uh, putting your feet on the ground nearby where your teacher is and offering service or if your teacher sends you to do service and do a project somewhere else you know doing that as as a way of offering so it's putting your time and your energy into uh, offering your service to your teacher now sometimes we can think well my teacher's just bossing me around telling me to do this and this they're so bossy yeah, they want me to do this, they want me to transcribe this, and they want me to edit this, and they want me to clean this, and they want me to cook that, and they want me to do this, and they want me to do that, and they want me to do the other thing. <sighs> Difficult people. <laughs> they always want me to do something. Okay? But And so if we think that way, then, then doing anything is going to be a good chore, isn't it? Oh, my teacher wants me to get out of bed in the morning. I'm not going to do it because they're bossy. You know, we get this rebellious side, don't we? Yeah. We all have this little bit of rebellion, don't we? Yeah. As soon as somebody tells us to do it, I'm not going to. Yeah. See if you can make me. Yeah. Okay. So when we get into that rebellious state, who suffers because of it? We do, don't we? You know, because if you look, if you've selected, you know, very well qualified spiritual mentors, here's somebody, you know, who's living an ethical life, who's, you know, values sentient beings more than themselves, who's trying to make a co- positive contribution to society, to the existence of the Buddha Dharma, to the entire universe, and we don't want to join in their good work. Yeah, and so maybe our teacher that day needs somebody to sweep the floor yeah and we have the talent and the ability to sweep the floor then we could sweep the floor you know would we if we don't sweep the floor then our spiritual mentor has to sweep the floor okay what else could they be doing to benefit sentient beings at that time yeah and if, if we sit there and like I want teachings and I want them to teach this and I want them to teach that but they're also supposed to sweep the floor and do the transcribing and run the office and you know do this and do that and the other thing 
then who's acting like a spoiled baby? You know? I mean, look at us. Yeah? So, so it's a thing of seeing, you know, here's somebody who has the potential to teach and to do all this good. If I can do something to aid that, how wonderful it is. Yeah. I mean, you look at, at uh, like the nuns who helped Mother Teresa. They were so inspired by what she was doing. They didn't expect her to take care of all those poor people and go around the streets of Calcutta picking them up off the streets. They were inspired by her vision and they wanted to do that. You know, picking lepers up off the street of Calcutta is not fun. You know, but in their minds they were so happy to do that because, you know, they saw her qualities and they believed in her vision and they wanted to be like her. Yeah. So you can see this. So offering service. And then the third offering is offering our practice. Okay? So really trying to hear the teachings, put them into practice. Yeah. We can always practice better. Yeah. But rather than say I'm not practicing good enough, we should always, you know, say what I'm doing is an offering of practice to my teacher. And I'm happy to be able to offer that. And in the future, you know, by being able to practice this much, then in the future I'll be able to practice more and my offering of practice will be greater in the future. Okay? Okay. So, um, you know, then the rest of the the paragraph that's giving examples. So he offered 100,000 pieces of gold to a master to receive the half verse. If there is birth, there is death. Stopping this process is bliss itself. You know, how many words? Three, four, five, six, seven. Thirteen words. Incredible meaning in that. You know, those thirteen words are worth much more than a hundred thousand pieces of gold. Because if you hold... If you know, if you can really understand the meaning of those words, yeah, then that's showing you the whole four noble truths right there in the path to liberation. Much more valuable than a bunch of gold. And gold is just have to lug around. Okay. In another life as a king, he sacrificed his wife and only child for for a single verse of the Dharma. This, this kind of thing doesn't go well with our cultural sensibilities because this is from you know, a traditional culture where the wife and the children were the man's property and you know, he could do whatever he wanted. So you know, we could look at it through the viewpoint of, oh, Buddhism is you know, misogynistic and blah, 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 blah. You know. Or we could say, what this verse is intending to do is showing how the Buddha gave up the objects that he was most attached to in order to receive the Dharma. Okay? So the things he was most attached to, yeah, he was willing to set aside because the Dharma was more valuable. Okay. And another uh, occasion he made his body into a lamp and burnt it as an offering to his spiritual mentor. Yeah. Would we uh, make our lamp into a, our body into a lamp? 
No, we cherish this body way too much. Okay? So it doesn't mean that we have to set our body on fire in order to show our devotion to the Buddha. Okay? Again, this kind of line, it, what it's indicating is, you know, the, the Buddha in a previous life was so unattached to his body. He gave up the attachment to his body and therefore that made him more receptive to be able to hear the teachings. Okay? So you see in, in all these things that it, it, it's all standing for, for certain mental attitudes. You know, I'm not attached to my wealth so I can give it. I'm not attached to my dear ones. You know, I can be separate from them. I'm not attached to my body. I'm not going to worry about it when I practice. Okay? So all these things become used as offerings. It it's talking about a mental attitude of detachment. Okay? In these and other ways, he abandoned wealth, possessions, and other objects of attachment. Since you are a follower of the Buddha, you should do likewise. Yeah? So I find that, that quite... Um, that's really hitting home. It's like, okay, I call myself the follower of the Buddha, but I want the easy path. <laughs> I don't want to give up my attachment. I want to have all my attachments and have my attachments not cause me any pain at all. Okay, I want to get everything that I'm attached to and not have attachment cause any pain. Plus, I want to be the... the the best disciple that sits in the front row that's my teacher's pet and that they praise in front of everybody else. And then I also want to get enlightened. <laughs> you know? <laughs> okay? But this is saying you're a follower of the Buddha. Think about how the Buddha practiced. Yeah? Really think about what the Buddha's state of mind is. Yeah. Did the Buddha sit and beat himself up? Yeah? I'm such a terrible practitioner. I'm so awful. I'm so attached. I'm so this. I'm so that. You know, no, the Buddha, that's not like the, how the Buddha practiced. We should practice as the Buddha practiced. Okay, if you've heard many teachings from your spiritual master, is his or her kindness not immeasurable? Okay, and so again, that comes from really seeing the 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 role that the Dharma plays in our life. And how precious the Dharma is and how without the Dharma we are totally lost. You know? Completely lost. Just think of how you would be living your whole life if you had never met the Dharma. Play your whole life out. You know? You know how you were until right before you met the Dharma then just keep going about how you were and play, you know, develop that whole scenario of how your life would have turned out if you kept on going from that point because you never met your teachers. Yeah, play, play it out. See how this life turns out. Watch the kind of karma that you would have created had you not met your teacher and met the Dharma. Yeah. How much positive karma would you have created? How much negative karma would you have created? What would your next life have been had you not met your teacher in the Dharma. Look at the karma you created. What, what, you know, what would your next life have been? Yeah. Would you, you know, if you hadn't met the Dharma, would you have created many causes for liberation and enlightenment? 
No. Yeah. So no causes for liberation and enlightenment, and no resultant liberation and enlightenment. Then where do you wind up? Okay. So really thinking about this shows shows us how incredibly precious the Dharma is and how incredibly fortunate we are to have met it. And that brings a certain kind of joy in our hearts. And we should feel joyful. When we're practicing, we should feel joyful. We think about our fortune having met the Dharma. Wow! So happy. We think about the outcome of having taken and kept the precepts that we kept and think, wow, I'm so happy I was able to do that. We think about whatever good things we've been able to accomplish. Wow, oh, I'm so happy. So then our life becomes very joyful because we've seen how we've been able to change, you know, because we may look at our life and compare ourselves to the Buddha and think, I don't do any practice and my life's a wreck. But if you think about how your life would have turned out if you hadn't met the Dharma, then you really see, wow, I've changed. You know, I've created some good karma here. I've done some purification. And I've developed a little bit of good qualities. And, oh, i got to give myself some credit for that and feel good about that. And then that happiness that comes from rejoicing at our practice, then that happiness itself encourages us to practice more. And if you just look even at the basic, you know, like the fundamental practice that we all start out with, which is ethical conduct, yeah, just think if, you know, to the extent at which we've created ethical conduct, to that extent, when it comes time to die, we'll be able to die peacefully. You know, we can look back on it, on our lives and say, "I lived a good life." Yeah. Okay, I did some negative actions. I tried to purify, but I also, you know, really tried to abandon a lot of negative actions, and I did create some virtue, and I did abandon some negative actions, and. My life was worthwhile. You know, I I had a good life. There was some goodness that came out of this. And then you feel a sense of of satisfaction in your own heart with what you've been able to do in your life. And then when you die, you're not afraid. Yeah? Because you're able to look back in your life and feel like, I have a lot of virtue in me from just even keeping the precepts I kept. Yeah, I have all that virtue in me and I can rely on that and rest on that and use that as a foundation for wherever I go in my future lives. Yeah? And then your 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 mind, you know, becomes happy and relaxed in this life and also at the time of death. Mm-hmm.